listening to Raíces Verdes, a platform dedicated to validating, archiving, and sharing the experiences of Black, Indigenous people of color in connection to the environment. My name is Samara La Fresa de Rancho, creator and host of Raíces Verdes. And today, I acknowledge that I am recording on occupied Snohomish territory, part of the Coast Salish peoples, also known as Linwood, Washington. I'm really excited about our guest today. Um, there's just been so much going on with this platform, so I'm really excited to get a little bit into it. But before we go there, I'm going to introduce my guest. We have Suzanne Garcia, a recent Arab Crossroads Studies graduate from New York University, Abu Dhabi. She was born to two young Guatemalan immigrants and raised in occupied Canarsi land or Queens, New York City and is currently an occupied Mexico and Tenochtitlan, part of the Mexica and Toltec people's historic land. She's also the founder of the Central American Collective, or sorry, CENT-M <laughs> Collective, and an educational digital space for Central Americans in diaspora in the global north. Hi, Sen. Hi, Samara. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Again, I'm so excited to uh, for you to make some time. You know, I know also your platform is constantly growing and evolving. So I know it's um, it can be really hard to schedule these kind of things. Yeah, for sure. It's always evolving. And I think, I mean, I'm sure you or yourself have gone through this phase with the podcast where you, I don't know, I feel like it's a constant self-reflection and self-analysis and so many processes happening and Thank you for giving me the time to, you know, think a little bit about it before coming on here. And so I could give something a little bit more concrete, but as I'll discuss here, you know, things are still evolving. Right. Of course. Um, so yeah, as like, it is customary for everyone that comes on this podcast, you know, um, Raices Verdes is a concept developed here. And so I want to hear what you consider your Raices Verdes. Um, what does that bring up for you, your own family's story and connection to the environment or anything else? Right. Yeah. And I actually, again, when I was looking more into this podcast, I looked into the races with this concept and I, I, I loved it. You know what I mean? Of course, this has a personal significance for you. But I think for all of us, you know, there's an incorporation of that concept. And so when, you know, this question, I think, is a great one and one that I haven't really thought about much. Um, but I think it's important, you know, as I think a lot of the work that and as we'll discuss, a lot of the work that I do is connected with the environment although you know i'm not trying to go for like an you know i'm not trying to brand myself as an environmentalist but you know naturally that's incorporated into my work and so um i think most of you know my raices better this comes from my mother's side of the family so both of my parents are from guatemala one of them was born and raised in guatemala city um so there really wasn't like much connection there they're also you know a very much kind of white mestizo family um so I, I guess kind of just like a typical urban family but my mother um they come from a really small village in Quiche in Guatemala um and so it's a it's a really small village they would call it an aldea um and i mean their whole her whole life and i know for my grandparents it was their whole life came from their own environment. They grew their own, you know, crops um, to eat and to sell. They raised animals again for food or for, you know, to sell also as well. Um, And so because of that, naturally there's, you know, a deep respect and connection to the land um, and awareness of how it works and how to treat it. Um, And my mom instilled a lot of that when, as we were growing up, 
um again it's not very it's like odd growing up kind of thinking of it as environmentalism because when we think of environmentalism now like, like in the u.s it has like a certain brand and Mm -hmm. um focus you know like it has to, it's supposed to be vegan and it's supposed to be like composting and plastics or whatever but you know with my like with my family growing up that the conversation is so different it, it looks much more different you know how to conserve and protect the land um so that you know you can have a good harvest for the upcoming years for the next generations um and i think the respect is just inherent and for me i guess i didn't I didn't really have that tension, didn't feel that tension just from what my mom taught me, you know, of with the land. It's like the conversation of respecting the land isn't even there because it's just a given that you have to because it provides for you. And again, right. even now, um, my my grandfather now um, takes care of the land. Like right now he's close to 90 um, and even recently had COVID. But when, on the days he felt well, he would get up and tend to the land and take care of it um you know they still sometimes own animals and they're not like as capable of doing it now but for a lot of um my aunts and uncles and cousins who have gone on and gotten their own pieces of land back in guatemala um again that respect and is still there. there there's no no fortunately you know for our community there hasn't been these threats of big corporations or commercialization again like the the land is is in unison with our survival. Right. No, definitely. And I think, like you said, those things are so hard to describe when you are living in somewhere like the U.S. because it has such a different, there's such a disconnect here of how capitalism has evolved. So yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. And, and I think, you know, like you said, even though this collective and yourself might not like categorize yourself as an environmentalist in these mainstream ways, um, I think like that is inherently there because um, remembering our history means we're going to have to remember also our people's history to land, to water, mm -hmm. to like all these different um, elements. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. And thank you for sharing a little bit about your story, you know, and um, so, yeah, so today's episode is going to be really focused on imperialism and the environment in Central America. Um, and so, you know, before we go into sort of those connections, can you tell us a little bit more about the collective you're part of and that you formed? Mm -hmm. uh, sent a How would you pronounce it, I guess? Because I just Yeah, like so I mean, just from the start, I've always called it the Centam Collective, um, just for social media handles purposes. Some people refer to it as the Central American Collective. I just always call it the Centam Collective, but either is fine. Okay, I just didn't know because I know <laughs> probably when you look up on like social media, there might be like a couple other like similar mm -hmm. accounts, but I just wanted to make sure like, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, giving it the right name. So, yeah, um, no worries. Yeah, so, you know, like it has a great amount of following and I don't know how long exactly it's been around. So I want to hear, you mm -hmm. know, like why, um, why the focus on Central America, right? Because we see mm -hmm. a couple of other bigger Latinx, quote unquote, mm -hmm. like accounts and, um sort of these accounts trying to cover similar issues, but this one is very specific to Central America. So why, why is that? Why is that collective? So, I mean, it's, again, a lot of these projects, I think, tend to be inspired or motivated by our own personal experiences um, or like experiences we see around us. So um, I'm going to delve a bit into my own story and lived experiences because it's very much tied to that. Um, so, again, I was born and raised in what is known as Queens, New York City, um, which is a very diverse um, place. You know, I think it's one of the 
most diverse places in the U.S. because it has such a high immigrant um, proportion. And it's like it's, it's a very high proportion also that hasn't been born in the U.S. And so, of course, there's a lot of first gen. There's a whole the first gen, gen generation is huge there. Um, so I was specifically born and raised in Jamaica, Queens. And there, you know, it was there was a crowd of, um, you know, Latinx people that tended to be mostly Central American, um, shared with also several um, for the Jamaicans, Dominicans. Um, and yeah, those were like the main immigrant populations around us. So um, fortunately, you know, I was very comfortable, you know, in that environment. I went to public school until sixth grade, um, you know, and again, since, although a lot of us were from different cultures, there was, you know, that understanding and sense of community because we all knew we were different and that was okay because being different was kind of the norm, you know? And I had, a, again, I had that Central American community growing up in public school. A lot of them also went to the Catholic church that my family went to. My family has been very Catholic growing up. Um, so I always had that presence. And again, most of it tended to be Guatemalans, Salvadorians, Hondurans, Nicaraguans. Um, and so it was, it was very comfortable. However, in seventh grade, I got, I got a scholarship to go to a school in the Upper East Side, which is a very wealthy, very white area. Um, it's like, you know, where Gossip Girl is based on crowd, those type of schools. And so I, you know, growing up from kindergarten to fifth grade, I went to the same public school um, and our grade was around 500 kids. And in that whole grade, there was only one white girl mm-hmm. and who like her name was Anne. And she, she, I mean, she stood out, you know, before that I had never, before going into the school, I didn't really know any white people, didn't, they had no concept of white culture, nothing, you know, because again, like I was just so surrounded by immigrant families and communities and that was the norm. And so going there was really, I mean, it was a type of traumatic experience because I just a lot it it was a lot to process because it wasn't just you know like the race thing but it was also just it was so tied with wealth um so it was a kindergarten a 12th grade school and I came in in seventh grade so at this point that grade had been together for eight years and when I came in with my best friend because we got in through a program she's also she's from Ecuador we were the first like Latinx people in that grade um so after and so with a lot of that came a lot, a lot of things people kept on getting us confused although we look so different and act very differently um a lot of microaggressions but you know as i was i started getting introduced to these aspects of white upper east side culture from like media music dress um you know all of these things that be, suddenly became desirable to me that were unattainable to me because first of all i couldn't be white so i couldn't really assimilate to that you know, Europeans, like that Eurocentric features that I don't have and can't force myself to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have the wealth to like, you know, get the clothes that they had to do the things that they did, um, go on the vacations that, you know, during spring break, the normal question was, where did you go? Not what did you do? And of course I would be like, I stayed home. Like I, I don't travel. Um, and so because of these things, it was for the, honestly, for most of the time there, I struggled a lot. Um, I started struggling with mental health at age 12 within the first three months I was there, um, really strongly. And at some point it got, it got, it got pretty bad. Um, and it was very isolating. Um, and then it was just a lot of self hate 
horrendous self-hate um just like to illustrate it and i think you know a lot of people that you know from central america or also just you know from the region of you know latin america have gone through this where you know you start trying to play into like what whatever proximity to whiteness you have um so for example garcia you know technically if you look it up it comes from like spain i try to point to that and be like hey i'm spanish and that's europe <laughs> And of course like no one like and even I knew because it's like when you look at me I'm not white. So like it just didn't it didn't happen but you know there was that desire to do like I wanted to be part of this culture to be part of this crowd. Um and you know I rejected Spanish. Um I mean you know now that it's you know now it's kind of like whatever Spanish is this other colonial language it's another thing but you know I was completely rejecting my heritage, my foods, my parents, my family. Um No, and it was just, there's just a lot of self-destruction that you know I brought on. Um however in around like junior senior year of high school I finally was kind of like screw this like I like I'm never going to fit in into this and that's okay I don't have to like I can just kind of do my own thing. Um for me there was like these two big radicalization moments where first I like read about the Palestinian struggle um and I also learned about the 1954 coup in Guatemala. Uh, and until that point I didn't know like war or imperialism was a thing I was very naive in that sense um and so you know after that I kind of you know began going back to my heritage my roots my family um and a lot of that went through the because again at that point I think a lot of us didn't grow up with the concept of like oh central american as an identifier um except sometimes like again as a guatemalan if you met like a salvadoran or honduran or nicaraguan you're kind of like hey like what's up you know um right. but i went through the whole like you know latinx route because that was the only thing i knew so i started following things like mitura mescla you know these like pan latinx pages and at first right. it was like exciting and i'd laugh at you know the chancla jokes and i was like tacos because i mean i you know i grew up with like some mexicans around me so like i loved mexican food um mm-hmm. but after a while it just felt so corny because i was like why are we always talking about like tacos like what about pupusas or tamales right. or you know what so just something else it was it was just like i don't know and I, at that time i didn't have like the terminology or language to identify it but what i know now what that was was like mexican hegemony as we know when you know in any latinx like space um it tends to be conquered by either like mexico argentina you know Colombia those are kind of like the big three like culture and again it's like even when we talk about like those concepts Mexico Colombia um or Argentina who are we talking about it we're talking about like this you know mestizo nationalism right where it's mm-hmm. like we're talking about you know mestizo people celebrating like the flags and like national dishes and national symbols you know um right. and you know i just didn't feel like it was speaking to me regardless Um and so after that like I again I like this took maybe 2 years one or two years to realize so like in the middle of um college I started looking for more central american pages because I I just started realizing you know like central I started looking at the region of central america more and seeing like wait there's like a lot of connections between like Belize to Costa Rica to Panama to Guatemala you know a lot of that because I like I read about like the central american federation um and you know other historical events like that that were shared by that whole region and again just seeing the cultural markers that were shared 
um, really motivated me in that. And so I just started randomly like looking up just Central America in Instagram and see whatever come up, like follow whatever came up. Um, and like shout out to Santan Beauty because that's one of the first um, pages I started following. Um, and Santan Beauty has been like really actually fundamental to the Central American digital community space. Um, and so basically after following them after a year, I felt like um, I wanted to start something of my own um, because during this time, again, during call, I mean, really high school onwards, but also as, as time goes along, I feel like the rate gets faster and faster. Um, and again, like I did have a degree in Middle Eastern studies. So a lot of that was studying, um, for example, like colonialism, talking about the effects of imperialism, of foreign policy, how that, you know, um, negatively impacts communities in the Middle East. And I always remembered, you know, reading about like what happened in Guatemala, like in the 1954 coup and knowing that, you know, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and so just kind of using, I started making connections. I was like, okay, like I know this happened in the Middle East and I know that like similar things has happened in Central America and I want to delve more into that. Um, and so I just kind of wanted like a platform where I could explore these issues. You know, a lot of it is kind of, kind of discussing what would be called, you know, like radical history, radical people's history. I wanted to explore that with other people um, because I knew and something that I like discovered very soon with founding, especially when talking about black communities or indigenous communities in Central America, you really the best source to learn that is from the people themselves. Like I try to during the first like few months, like try to make posts. I was like, oh, do you know that these are the indigenous communities of El Salvador? And like I like out of my own ignorance, for example, like online, I would say like, oh, it would say like the Nawa community in El Salvador, no one like doesn't exist. And I would write that and people like Nawa people themselves are like, that's not true, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's been a great learning source. Um, but anyways, I founded it. This I ended up founding it in July 2019 um, and like with a very broad, vague goal in mind of, you know, I want to learn. I'm going I don't really know anything about graphic design or I've never done any type of social media strategy. I don't even know if there's Central Americans that are really that interested in it. Um but I just I I did it and it kind of, it quickly grew. Um I get like a lot compared to my expectations. Um within the first month or two like I quickly surpassed a thousand followers. Um I kind of, you know, what's called plateaued at 5000. Um, and then something I've caught on is that basically when something regarding social justice becomes mainstream, I get a huge hit to my followers, unfortunately, or fortunately, right. I still don't know, like, you, because it's like, okay, it's I great know. that people want to learn. But yeah. at the same time, I know a lot of these people may like quickly become disinterested or like you just cared because it became mainstream. But yeah. Like I'm still trying to see, cause it's so far I've only had two major blips. So again, I had 5,000, um, until like what the eighth month and then and when George Floyd's murder happened within a week I had 10,000 and so that was completely overwhelming and that month was a lot of um work and again like reevaluation because I'm not black I'm not indigenous right. um but one of my main goals is centering that and you know kind of being like okay I don't have to talk about you know just black communities in Central America and again this leads a lot to like my vision now um 
but it's also relevant for us to talk about black communities in the US or in Canada, you know, where a lot of us are living. Like we have to build that type of solidarity. Um, and then what happened? Oh yeah, with the capital um, thing that happened last month, I also got like a whole other surge of followers. So now I'm at 20 something thousand. Um, so it's been a year and a half and it, it's been overwhelming at times, but like, an insane and fascinating learning experience. And I've like made some, you know, amazing connections and I've like, I've made friends from it as well. Um, but really, um, again, like the reason I founded this was because in Latinx space is quite frankly, I think that, you know, as a lot of, first of all, as we know now, it's an anti-indigenous, anti-black space. Um, and I think also Central America, just because relative, you know, to the whole like Latinx region, it has many, it has a lot of black and indigenous communities. Um, and even those for people, those for who are not black and non-indigenous, they're not, you know, necessarily represented or seen in, you know, pan-Latinidad. Again, thank you for giving us kind of that extended history and really talking about your personal experience. Like you said, um, I think a lot of these platforms um, come out of our own lived experiences, which is important, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because we want ourselves to be telling these stories and we want like our community to be telling their stories, not other folks making these accounts or these um, research about us. And so I think it's good that, you know, we are creating these spaces for ourselves. And so I noticed um, shifting a little bit more to the connections with the environment, you know, when I was looking also through like the collective like website and like Linktree and Instagram, I saw that um, there's a lot of different things attached to like, hurricane disaster relief and like mutual aid projects happening and there was something about like banning natural exploitation in Costa Rica protection of sacred lands like all these different things right that uh for me fall within like the environmental justice spectrum mm -hmm. so in your opinion you know just like based on these different things you've seen like why is Central America so impacted by different environmental injustices so that question is really interesting because I had never really thought about that or necessarily made that connection but I think something that definitely is coming out of this interview for me is that I mean fighting for Central America is you know fighting for the environment fighting for climate change and all of these issues and although you know it's not like I particularly have like a specialty in the environment um it just quite naturally happens and so I mean you're right a lot of these links have to do um with stopping you know harm to the environment or again in the case of like hurricanes at the Nyota um to help people recover from climate disasters and so I think you know these are kind of two different phenomena that's happening that are important to talk about um so first I'll talk about um something that I think can broadly start the discussion so there was one of the first posts I actually made um back in August 2019 was this map that was produced by the International Unit, Union for the Conservation of Nature. And their study found that the indigenous community helped play a crucial role in the preservation of Central America's forest. Um, and so again, as I've discussed, Central America again has like a quite high um, indigenous and Afro-indigenous black population. And a lot of these communities are inherently tied to the land that they're from. Um, their, you know, their communities is formed around where their, you know, ancestors have been for generations and centuries. And so, for example, like in this map that they produced, they show that approximately 51% of Central America's current forest cover is either inside or adjacent to indigenous territory. 
Um, and one of the quotes that they said was, you cannot talk about conservation without speak speaking of indigenous peoples and the role as the guardians of our most delicate lands and waters. Um, and so making this connections to like petitions when our people are talking about, okay, banning natural exploitation in Costa Rica or protecting Garifuna lands, a lot of the times the people that are water and land defenders in Central America tend to be from indigenous and or black communities. Um, but also, again, I think because of that, Central America has managed to preserve a lot of its natural environment because thanks to these communities. Um, however, unfortunately, throughout the centuries and even now, they're still under threat from because you know of the resources that Central America has um, from either fruits or crops um, or water or whatever access to the other side of the ocean, for example, a lot of, unfortunately, Western companies have taken interest to that. So I think it's a combination, first of all, of the natural resources that Central America has and has been able to preserve, combined with the fact that we're next to the biggest imperialist in the world. Um, where So it, it's very unfortunate, you know, because um, because of this, we have, because of the allure exists for these companies either you know from the u.s canada um but also europe um they come and want to take land or again want governments that will give them land or allow them to invest more um something that's really popular now is hydro mining and tourism um so as we know for example in the honduran coast which tends it tends to be mostly um garifuna communities um, and other indigenous and or black communities, um, they want to use the coastlines for tourism or want to develop it for homes, which again, won't necessarily, will, will most likely not go towards that population, but for people right. outside of the country or the rich elites of that country. Um, and so unfortunately, because of that, um, a lot of the transnational solidarity that we have to build around when, you know, putting people in Central America to the forefront tend to be environmental issues. And again, a lot of that, um, a lot of that discussion, since we're centering indigenous and black communities, one of their biggest threats, not to just, you know, their life, I mean, to their livelihoods, but also to just the survival of their communities um, and culture um, tends to be environmental projects because they want to use the community's land and resources, which will lead to the destruction of that land. Um, and so, and then the second thing, when we're talking about, for example, things like hurricanes at the Niota, so for people who don't know, um, in like the week of Dia de los Muertos, Hurricane Eta hit, which was like a category seven hurricane. Um, it completely destroyed, again, the same, the, the and it's really sad because it came and hit those same communities, like on the Nicaraguan and Honduran coast which tend to be indigenous and or black communities. Um, there were villages and towns completely underwater for weeks um, in Guatemala. Um, just in, like, it was quite close to my, where my mom's family was from, um, mm -hmm. just less than an hour away um, in Coban, which it, there's a big indigenous community. There were landslides that were provoked that completely buried villages and families. Um, and, so, and then one week later, Hurricane Iota hit, which came and hit mo basically what Hurricane Eta hit. Um, and 
just as strong as a hurricane. And so when it's, it's, it's like how, where do you even start? Right. Because first of all, it affects those very communities that, you know, we're talking about that need the most defense. They're already like trying to fight off, um, you know, vulture corporations um, and development projects. Yeah. Like a mass gentrification of their land. Right. Like they're already struggling with this and these hurricanes come. um, And then the thing is that a lot of these two hurricanes, and as we know, this hurricane season was, if people were paying attention, was insane. There was so many hurricanes and it wasn't just Central America that was really impacted. The Caribbean was really impacted as well. Um, And, you know, it was like the, it was a hurricane season with like the most or second most hurricanes since like, I don't know, in the past 20 years or so. It was really devastating. Um, and again, it was unfortunate also because the same communities that impacted are the people contributing least to climate change. Um, and obviously the this hurricane season, such like a volatile, horrendous hurricane season was provoked by the same climate change that they've been basically negating for the rest of the world or for the rest of the hemisphere. Um, and so really climate change and climate justice are really such central themes for Central America um, because, I mean, firstly, it, it really does affect most of the region. It kind of, you know, it's a, heart, a natural disaster is not going to see race, class and wealth, which, you know, is going to make everyone in the region care about it. Um, but also because the regions that are mostly impacted are going to be the most vulnerable populations, what tends to be black and or indigenous communities that are also low income that are also targets of the state um and have been you know trying to survive for the the, their violent states for the past several um, several centuries Mm -hmm. um and so it's it's a complicated i feel like i talked about different factors like from climate change to who's been preserving the environment to who is still preserving the environment and you know the alert, what that alert of the environment represents to corporations that want to take advantage of that. Um, but really, I mean, environmentalism and environmental issues, I think, are so central to Central America's well-being, especially for those communities that, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to center now. Right. And I think, like, if we also wanted to add another layer to it, that would probably long mm-hmm. conversation would be like immigration right like climate yes. becoming a thing like people are living right. their like homelands because the climate is getting so bad or like mm-hmm. you know, they're not able to grow the crops that they used to because again the land is changing and so mm-hmm. again what does like immigration policy look like again if we get back to the conversation about mexican hegemony like with immigration right like who gets to stay in this country who gets access to these things like mm-hmm. um what do we think when we think of an immigrant in this country, like all these different things. And so, yeah, that's another layer to it as well with like the things that you already mentioned. And then I was also thinking about, you know, sadly we see all these statistics every year about how many um, environmental activists um, die, right. Or like murder. And I think it's like a super ridiculous high number. It's like one of the most dangerous things you can be an advocate for in right is like an environmentalist um if you want to call it that and like you said mostly they're black and people um and so that's another thing too is that like this isn't even like a oh i want to be an environmentalist because i think it's like cute and like you know i care about no this is my life and it's on the line for it right yeah and that's something that i do want to discuss a little bit more because even when we talk about 
and again, like when we talk about, you know, climate change activists, right? Like people think about Greta Thunberg. Um, and I'm so tired of hearing her name. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, it's not, I mean, she's doing something good and that's great, you know, good for her, but it's unfortunate that she's like the face of that movement. Um, because while, if Greta stops being a climate activist today, she will most likely be fine for the rest of her, like she will not lose her community or her family or her livelihood because of it, you know? Um, and if anything, it like has been able to set her for life doing this. While, for example, when we think of Berta Cáceres, which is a really prominent um, Lenka, which is an indigenous community in Honduras, um, activist for her community against corporations, she ended up being assassinated right. at age, like, I don't know, in her, in, she was aged 44. Um, it's been over 50 months since she was assassinated. It's pretty obvious that it was like state um, forces or someone contracted by the state to get rid of her. And since then, there's been no type of justice or accountability. Um, I think they've like been trying to um, have a trial actually maybe, but like they delayed it like 10 times as is usual with all of these. And um, it's not just Berta Cáceres, as, as you said, um, Central America. And again, it's not just, it's like the whole region that's known as Latin America. It's one of the most dangerous places to be a water land defender because a lot of the times you're, in the best case scenario, you're like you're targeted to death threats, harassment, intimidation tactics, and but a lot of the times it's murder or harm either to you or your family. Um, and I, like I just read in in January, um, there was a guard from a Canadian um, mining company that was convicted for murdering a Kekchi um, indigenous leader that was protesting against the harm that it was doing to his community's land and he was killed in i think like 2009 2008 and because his wife who kept on fighting and fighting and fighting they were able to get some type of accountability from the guatemalan state and another thing that's you know um i'm just gonna throw in here just to complicate things a little bit more because why not <laughs> is that a lot of the time this kind of environmental um violence which is also, you know, anti-Indigenous, anti-Black violence is state-sponsored um, yes. due to a whole crafty history that, you know, West, the West and the U.S. has been has managed to pull off is that a lot of the times they've been able to coerce or, you know, as we'll talk later, instill, not instill, put in leaders that will allow U.S. companies or Western companies to come in and exploit the environment and the communities and so if the company comes and hurts an indigenous community or an Afro-Indigenous community or a black community, the state kind of know that's gonna, knows that's going to happen. But the reality is that they really don't care because they're happy that they're allies with these corporations. Um, yeah. So, again, like that, that facet of how the state sponsors the same environmental violence is also a key part of this conversation in Central America, because it wouldn't be that big of an issue if the state wasn't there allowing it and actually enforcing it a lot of the times. 100%. And I think, you know, yeah, I think this is a perfect transition. So let's name <laughs> one of those companies, you know, let's yes. uh, you know, know what we're talking about. We're not just like making up things. Um, so, yeah, I recently, you know, re like I've been following the account for a while, but really wanted to have you on the podcast more recently because um, there was 
a lot of talk on like Twitter and then, you know, on the Instagram as well about Chiquita, you know, the, the banana brand, um, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'll let you explain like what was going on. And when I saw that, you know, I think I also made sort of those last like connecting the dots for me of like, yeah, we need to talk about this because these companies are very much tied to like the history of our people migrating and of like exploitation of land. So let's just get into it. Like, you know, the examples we've been talking about today can really be seen in this situation. So just a quick rundown, like what is happening with this whole like banana republics and Chiquita that started trending on Twitter a couple months ago? Right. So I think like it started kind of coming to people's attention when I don't know what happened. Someone used, I think Bush used the term banana republic sometime in the fall. Um, And there were some accounts that started dissecting that online. Um, And I feel like in terms of like the explaining the banana republic terminology, I'm not great at yet, but the basic rundown is that banana republic is a term that stems from describing countries in Central America. and at this point, when people like, you know, mainstream politicians use it and non-Central Americans use it, they are talking about, oh, a country that's corrupt, it's inefficient, um, kind of like a chaotic scenario where, you know, you can't, the economy, like, I think a big term, a big component of it is that there's not, not like a lot of economic security. So there's not a lot of private investment. You would want to go there because of that. There's also not a lot of political stability. Um, however, it's really insulting because banana republics comes to describe um, Central American republics that, you know, have corrupt governments or dictators, um, again, with like that economic and political instability. But when they use banana republics, they're ignoring the fact that that's um, same instability and those same dictators exist because of U.S. intervention, namely. And so when a U.S. politician uses banana republic, it's really insulting because they are the reason why a banana republic, you know, why that term came to be and why, you know, Central America, why Central American countries would be called banana republics. Um, And so that kind of, you know, started making a little bit of waves, but um, I guess first I'm just going to describe what happened with Chiquita and then move on into like the significance of Chiquita and like what it represents and then kind of, you know, what I want to do with that. So the first thing that started just the summary of things was that around December, um, Chiquita has a very millennial yellow social media strategy going on on Twitter and Instagram, very cutesy and fun with bananas. Um, and you know, it's very aesthetically pleasing. And I guess something that usually happens um, is that people um, start replying to their tweets being like, oh, um, you did X in Colombia, you did X in Guatemala, or whatever. So the thing is, Chiquita wasn't always Chiquita. Chiquita used to be the United Fruit Company, which was founded in the late 1800s, very late 1800s. Um, and United Fruit Company has a very rich history of doing disgusting things in Central and Latin America um, from, you know, letting massacres of their workers happen happen um they were direct like the there was a 1954 there was a coup in Guatemala. i'm gonna start that sentence again (laughs) so yeah the united fruit company has a very rich history of doing very 
gross and unethical things all around Central America and, you know, the wider Latin American region. Um, some of those things is that, for example, in the early, like in the 1920s, um, they allowed for a massacre of their workers to happen, of course, with the Colombian state's blessing. Um, in 1954, there was a coup in Guatemala that was organized by the CAA just for the United Fruit Company. Um, and Chiquita itself, you know, hasn't had their hands clean. Um, I think I'm not, I think it was like the 70s or 80s when it became, you know, known as Chiquita Brands. Um, but, you know, they also have a history of exploiting their workers. Um, the pesticides that they've used have sterilized their workers on like en masse um, and have also caused cancer, tumors. Um, and even the most like recent kind of mind blowing thing that they did was from the late 1990s to the early 2000s, they funded paramilitaries in Colombia that would massacre people. Um, and so it seems like these replies were kind of normal. You know, it wasn't like a huge movement or whatever. It seems that, you know, there's been like kind of a, there's been a lot of individuals that have been doing a boycott Chiquita thing because of the history of Chiquita and United Fruit Company. Um, however, in what was weird about this time was that Chiquita responded to these replies but honestly, I don't like I think it may have been better for them, like from a corporate PR standpoint for them to just not respond. So I'm going to read out the tweet that they responded with. So they responded with, we validate your concerns about our history in Latin America. Since 2015, Chiquita has been under new ownership and has taken extensive steps to become a new company focused on sustainability, employee welfare. Read more here with a link to their sustainability report. And so I like I can dissect this like at least four ways um, from the <laughs> I'm going to lose it if I hear anyone else say I validate X, Y and Z. Like, what does that even do? Yeah, like I think they, 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 they definitely got that. Like that was a tactic they picked up like on Black Lives Matter and thought that that would do anything for like communities. Like no one wants a validation. Right. Um, they also did like a, they wrote since 2015, they have new leadership, which is supposed to comfort us given that they were founded in the late 1800s. Right, um, and this, like, what is that? Really right. Do? Like, it's like, okay, that this doesn't mean anything. Also at the same time, like you're still a multi-billion dollar company. So like you saying how like in their sustainability report, they talk about how um, basically they talk about how they don't mistreat their workers and how they sometimes they give free education to like their workers, kids and communities, which is the very bare minimum, given that they're a multi-billion dollar company. And, you know, we all know how corporate sustainability works, like, and the conversation it has and like environmentalism, like it's, it's, it's BS, (laughs) you know, like, it's like, okay, but you're still like commercializing bananas and not paying your workers well. And, you know, what does that mean? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so just continuing with what that happened, I saw this and got really angry because again, kind of something that I've been, has been so fundamental in my understanding in my politics and how I've seen the world is understanding this 1954 coup in Guatemala. And to hear that this company is saying this was, um, insulting. And so I was like, at this point, you know, I had a platform. I wasn't yet at 20,000 followers, but I was getting there. And so I was like, you know what, like I can talk about, like I can use a platform to bring attention to this, you know, because I think that 
unfortunately a lot of central americans that were raised in the global north don't know about this not because it's their fault but because of like the indoctrination we fall into you know of like either in the us or canada or europe right like our history isn't taught imperialism isn't really taught right and again even when the use people are still like nancy pelosi also used it last year like even like these so-called democrat like i mean they are democrats but like so-called like Liberal. progressives or whatever yeah liberals call the term banana republic but don't want to talk about the fact that they're responsible for the fact um that that term even exists and so um i just like i made a comment um i mean i made a post um like first i made a thread on twitter in response to the thread like a sarcastic one being like it makes up for genocides descended to poverty being incarcerated tortured murdered for political views and for a migration crisis that has been ongoing um and also obviously the traumas that have been passed down from generations and will continue to um it was sarcastic because obviously it doesn't make up for any of that um and i shared this i shared the original post from chiquita and my post the thread that i made in response on instagram it got a good amount of attention um and people started sharing you know some other stories about what chiquita has done there was people talking about how their own families have worked for chiquita and the unfortunate things that have happened um and at that you know it, it it was kind of just limited to that i i did go to chiquita's instagram account to see like if they were getting the same replies that they were getting on twitter and they weren't um so i decided to start commenting to kind of bring some of like that twitter <laughs> drama over to instagram because on twitter like people were were, were ridiculing that response you know like that conversation that discourse was happening on twitter but not on instagram and so i brought it over some people saw the post and you know also um took it upon themselves to comment as well and by the next day i realized that my comments and the comments of other people were deleted right and so it wasn't that many comments it was probably like a dozen comments from like us you know rogues or whatever but they deleted it and so at that you know that really stood out to me um because they weren't doing that on twitter yet Um and so I made a, another post being like hey Chiquita's like deleting comments that are bringing attention to their history you know of enabling genocide of exploiting workers um of literally funding death squads and you know I I urge people to go comment because of you know kind of to be like oh like you were scared of a dozen comments how are you going to react to like way more comments than that you know at that point I don't know how much people were going to comment um and people did there was hella comments i have receipts because i was scared and right that they were going to delete them yeah um you know it was it was there was a lot of momentum behind it people were pissed um it seems like you know a lot of people had a some idea of what happened a lot of people were like learning or like lear- learning the full extent of you know what chiquita and united fruit company has done um so you know it was it was encouraging you know knowing that there was like a community that cared about this issue And so I go to sleep. The next day I wake up and check and so turn Chiquita had deleted over 100 comments from their Instagram pictures. Um and I made a whole post outlining outlining this too. Like I showed that there was originally 115 comments. I counted only t- 23 were left. The amusing part of all of this was that the critical Spanish um comments, which you know are like the most poetic ones, were left right. up. which like spoke to spoke to like the crazy cultural ignorance that must exist at Chiquita 
because right, they're working like <laughs> they work in central america i mean they work in like a lot of spanish-speaking territories and you can't like even understand that someone's criticizing you in spanish and those are the only critical comments you don't delete um but seeing that was really i don't know it was kind of shocking and it's something that you know i'm still reflecting on as to like what does that mean when um you know they put out this validation or whatever that's supposed to be like oh we're like nice and we understand or whatever but when like it just felt like it was a whole other realm when you know the descendants of those people impacted you know the descendants of people who worked for chiquita the descendants of people displaced because of what chiquita has done um descendants of people who you know basically the tens of the people that they try to exterminate or get out of their way right speaking for the people who have been you know killed or massacred um etc etc when they silence those like they really don't care because if they're not going to listen to the community most impacted which are you know either the people who were there or the descendants of those people like then what there's no other recourse right and so, you know, I made this, I made like an Instagram live, breaking it down, talking to people about it, um, kind of just like stepping it up. Um, on that same day, Chiquita, first they blocked me from commenting on their posts. Um, and people like commented again, being like, why did you block the Sentime Collective? And again, that's a whole, like another thing, like the Sentime Collective is one of the biggest Instagram accounts or social media accounts for Central Americans, you know, and if you block that who will you not block because that's kind of the only yeah and it's like sending such a clear message right like you said that we don't want to hear central american voices like that's what they're saying by blocking this account and so yeah yeah, i I think that like after seeing that because i was like keeping up with it on twitter i was like this is like what more proof do we want that they don't want to address this issue right and so um so first they did that and people started commenting hey why are you blocking this in them collective and also you know blocking things be like talking about what they've done in the past um and then after a while um i had again i had this live and after this live um they had completely blocked the sentem collective like just from the account um which was shocking because it's like damn you really don't care um they're like there's really no hope with you and then they also just turned off comments on their first two posts which were the posts getting all of the comments um so they just like when they when you turn off comments it basically deletes all the comments that have already happened Mm -hmm. and so that's like the summary of like the main events that happened um at the time you know rightfully so i was pretty pissed off and so were a lot of people um, cause it literally like silencing of hundreds of voices. And again, of voices that like are most authorized, like, you know, in that category of most authorized to talk about it. Um, and so out of, I mean, I had good intentions at the time. I immediately started talking about, you know, like boycott Chiquita or whatever. Um, a lot of, you know, most, most people were supportive, um, you know, and again, with good intentions and whatnot um because people were splitting the idea of some doing some more organized action because clearly they don't care about like social media comments or whatever they find it easy to delete and eliminate that like let's step it up where like it really hurts which is you know as people say their wallets Mm -hmm. um so i was going down that route for like a day or so when people started bringing you know very valid concerns of being like hey like doing a strike can actually hurt the workers 
Um, like if you're ever going to do a strike, you need to make sure that, you know, you, this is an agreement with the workers because, um, although again, you know, in terms of like diaspora demographics, yeah, we're one of the most authorized people to advocate for this, but like, you know, the, we have to censor the workers. We can't speak for workers. We can't speak for the people actually in Central America dealing with whatever Chiquita is doing now, because it's not just a past thing. Chiquita is still doing their thing and can still commit even more harm. Um, I think, you know, there's another struggle with, or not a struggle, but a factor that always has to be in consider consideration with like transnational solidarity, especially from like a diaspora standpoint is that, you know, you don't want to become like this diaspora centric advocate that speaks over, you know, the people on the ground like that can actually get hurt because of what you're doing. And so when people brought that up, you know, I, it made a lot of sense, um, I needed to, I didn't know what like my final answer was, but I like knew that I at least had to halt the campaign because I don't want to like, I don't want to be causing this harm for no reason. I mean, not no reason. I just don't want to be causing harm. Um, and so I immediately halted the campaign. I was like, like I, I explained to people, people like mostly like understood. There were some people being like how those workers were sellouts, but it's like, no, you don't understand. Like yeah, people like, work for Chiquita because they need to survive. Right, like, like that's like here. And yeah like in the u.s people would work for amazon it doesn't make them like a class trader it's just you need funds and you know like um we're a part of a broader system that some like we kind of have to participate to to a certain extent to survive um so i just like immediately halted that um i think it was around that time when you reached out to me um and yeah. you know i got like <laughs> i got some people reaching out being like hey like i i'd love to collaborate with like a camp like on a campaign with you or whatever um and like during this time just like on a personal side note i like had made like a huge life decision and like i was like supposed to fly to south korea in like three days and i like withdrew from it with like no job offer like as a backup or whatever um and then I needed to like move to like where I was going to be living to next and like within the next week. And so, um, and again, like this, it had been like three days full of like a lot of feedback, a lot of likes, a lot of comments, a lot of like resources. Like it was, you know, it, it, it's a lot. And so I was like, okay, I need to think about it. I don't know how long I'm going to think about it, but I just kind of like withdrew from the issue completely. And I mean, during that time, I started reading Bitter Fruit, which is like the basic like um, reading on like imperialism in Central America. It's basically about um, it's about the 1954 CIA coup in Guatemala and the United Fruit Company's role in that. Um, it goes into so much detail. I actually finished it within the last week. It's it's a really good book. And if you go to the Sensham Collective, um, I have like this community Google Drive where there's like free PDFs, like it has a free PDF of that book for anyone interested. Um, it's a great book, recommended read. Um, but yeah, I, start, I started doing that reading just to educate myself a little bit more while reflecting on the feedback. It took me around like two to three weeks to think about it really. Um, but so now kind of like, where am I now with this whole Chiquita United Fruit thing? I've decided to um, there's also another piece of feedback that I forgot to mention that's really crucial in all of this was that because at first we were talking about, oh, what if we have like an organized campaign? It doesn't have to be a boycott, but, you know, demanding for Chiquita to, first of all, like, you know, take accountability for what they did because th th that there's no instance where they've done that. They've never said, you know, 
we messed up for the 1954 CIA coup. We messed up for these massacres. We that, that, These acknowledgements have never happened for every single instance where they've done harm. Um, and so, you know, demanding accountability for that and then demanding reparations for, like, for example, indigenous communities that were genocided because of the Guatemalan civil war that they started or, you know, workers being given reparations, you know, if they got cancer, et cetera, et cetera. But someone brought up how, like, even these demands were very ne neoliberal themselves. Um, because let's say Chiquita does do this, right? Which, you know, would be like, it, there could be some good coming out of that, but it still doesn't eliminate the fact that what Chiquita is, which is a multi-billion um, multinational company operating, you know, in the global South to make billions in the global North. Right. Um, I think that's the biggest thing too for me is just like the fact that, okay, like this fruit comes from, you know, this part of the world, like that's fine. That's not mm -hmm. the issue. It's just like the people whose land we're getting the fruit from don't own the, the, the labor, you know, and like, obviously right. a whole different conversation of what it's like owning labor and fruit and land look like, but still like the fact that this company is not even led by the people that are producing the product. <laughs> right. And then, and the other thing is that, um, you know, although the worst of Chiquita seems to like have passed, you know, like, at, and it's sad, you know, it's like, oh, they're just, they're doing the standard harm that a multi-billion <laughs> national um, fruit company in the global South would do, you know, they're not like genociding people at least, um, which is sad that that's something that to be grateful for. Um, <laughs> like, despite that this is all that they're doing, it the system still stands where, Again, like Chiquita's not the only company who has exploited Central America, Latin America, the global south. Even now, as we speak, as like, you know, I brought up what a really big thing that is that's happening now in Central America is hydro mining, um, which is a threat. For example, like it's again, and this is a whole other conversation, but like water is already a big issue in several countries like El Salvador. Um, where water can be privatized and people are running dangerously little water. And, you know, hydro mining takes up a lot of water when th that's the last thing these lands need. Um, these companies are coming. They're displacing people. Um, the state, you know, encouraging, not encourages them, but like allows them to perform violence on these communities. Um, and, you know, all, again, as I've said, like this, as you said, this contributes to migration. Um, again, it just enables this violence against black and or indigenous communities that exist in these regions um so as it, the point is there's other companies that would still be doing it even if we get what we want from chiquita and chiquita becomes a standard whatever multi-billion dollar company it doesn't address the fact that central america is still suffering from similar companies in different fronts um chiquita is really just kind of a casebook study um no, it's, i'm gonna repeat that sentence Central America is just a case study of all of these things that are happening in Central America as we speak. Um, and so that also was really influential in me deciding to have um, an educational campaign around Chiquita, where, you know, we discuss what Chiquita has done, not only in Central America, because they've also done things in Chiquita United Fruit Company has also done things in the Caribbean um, and in other parts of Latin America. Um, but where, you know, we talk about it, we discuss the impacts that it's had, but we really take it, you know, this is just the case study of Western imperialism, neoliberal extractivism, and global capitalism. Case, like, Chiquitas just represents 
of what dozens of other companies are doing right now or have done now in these same regions and they're going to continue doing um and so for example like drawing connections to again hydro mining happening now um and again also it's not just the u.s thing a lot of these hydro mining companies are canadian and you know canada is like given like the nice friendly image you know but it's it's really like it's still a really it's it's a horrible it's it's a horrible country it's still a settler settler colonial country it exploits it it it's imperialist etc cetera, etc cetera. um we're also you know making connections to biden's four billion dollar plan in central america of which a big aspect of it is that it would encourage um u.s and western private investment in the region so that companies can go do work there you know, so we we make connections and being like, hey, like this foreign policy is going to enable this type of harm. And so um, what I've done so far is that, you know, at first I put out a call for people who wanted to join the mailing list. Um, and now we finally scheduled our first general meeting, which is happening this upcoming Sunday. Um, well, at this time when the podcast is, what is yeah. it, aired? <laughs> <laughs> the first general meeting is going to, would have been on February 21st, um, which I'm really excited about. And again, I want to make this a very collaborative effort because, I mean, as we spoke, I'm pretty young um, and I don't have, you know, a vast amount of like organizing experience or campaign experience, digital campaign experience. You know, I'm kind of just learning as I'm going. Um, And again, you know, I have like my strengths. I think like my strengths play in like research and writing um, but a lot of people who have reached out, you know, on the mailing list right now, we have at first we had like around 30 people. And then in this new sign up form for the general meeting, we've had over 60 responses, um, which brings us around to like 70 or 80 people because um, there may be repeats. So like 70 or 80 people who like, you know, have expressed interest in collaborating in this campaign. And there's people who I've spoken to who, you know, have actually already like done art regarding Chiquita's um, history um who've done research who um you know they just like have focused on this throughout their years um or they have organizing experience in another area um etc etc and so it's really an exciting opportunity to collaborate really with like you know the digital community that i've been exposed to and people bringing in their um skills and fields of expertise to really you know build a comprehensive campaign about chiquita um, you know, exposing what they've done through op-eds, through art, um, through writing, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, you know, now I can't be really specific because the first general meeting hasn't happened now, but I think there's a lot of potential. And as I've said, um, there was a lot of interest and positive feedback regarding, um, you know, these type of critiques back in January and I was scared that, you know, I had lost a bit of momentum when I like posted again, you know, three weeks later talking about, hey, like I'm ready to resume this campaign because I've reflected enough. Um, I've gotten a, a lot of DMs, a lot of messages um, and a lot of great energy um, on this campaign. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about, you know, how this can go. It's really a campaign that I visualize, you know, taking place over like over the course of months. And it's going to be, you know, multimedia. Um, so really, it'll it'll you know broaden the audience because as we know, people learn in different ways and engage in different ways. Um, and so I, I'm pretty excited for it. Yeah, and I think what's cool too, like you were saying, is that folks are coming from different 
levels of organizing and history with that because I think something that I've heard, you know, throughout this episode is like how important it is for this intergenerational archiving of information. So I'm sure there'll be folks that are coming to the call that you said have had already experienced researching this and putting together materials about um, whether it's specifically Chiquita brand or just in general, like the exploitation of um, harvest and, you know, crops and different fruits in Central America. And then also like there'll be probably folks who are new, right? Like younger than us that will be coming to the Mm -hmm. call that will learn about it too. So I just think that's important in general and something to celebrate that like, it's so important for us to keep passing down this knowledge so that like people don't forget, you know, because yeah, like obviously with its new branding, Chiquita would want people to not know about this and like wants it to look more like a fun, like you said, very millennial company. It's not. And so I think it is important to, um, to keep passing down this knowledge across generations. Right. And another aspect that I forgot to mention that's, you know, really important is that, and I still haven't done the necessary research that I need to know how to go about this, but a big, um, even like in the Google sign up form, because I put in space for people to talk about like feedback, concerns, etc. is that there's a lot of interest like from me and older people to um, center the current Chiquita workers and see, you know, if there's any like issues where we can like help elevate and center their experiences as well. Um, and so again, like I haven't really had this experience, but I've been talking to people who, you know, have been in organizing for decades and have been giving me guidance and contacts and everything. And so that's something that we're hoping to incorporate, um, you know, so that it's not just, you know, just a diasporic centric thing, but, you know, we can build that transnational, that opportunity to build transnational solidarity in our actions. Yeah. And I think also um, it's good to like, see how older folks have been able to like, support you rather than kind of be like who are you to come in and talk about this because at the end of the day like I think in any social movement we have to realize like we're not indispensable at least the way I see it like you know the the again the cycle has to continue we have to continue passing down leadership and also like at the end of the day your platform now you know does have a good like following and has a good standing and like why not capitalize that you know in the sense that like you can Mm. get more folks out there more word out there and amplify like other work by a uh, work by other people you know which I've seen in, a lot in the account so yeah I'm just excited to see like you said um this podcast will come out after the general first meeting but you know I've been sharing like the posts that you all have made and and I will definitely be sharing information about the meeting but um I guess before we kind of wrap up do you want to add anything else about just in general what you want like maybe some mainstream environmentalists that are listening to this or climate activists from the U.S. like what do you want them to know about Central America that maybe they're not like taking into consideration? Yeah, I think that um, and we'll, we'll talk about environmental environmentalism in Central America. I think that discussion is very much tied to, you know, imperialism. Um, I mean, those three things I said, imperialism, um, neoliberal extractivism and global capitalism. I don't think you can have a conversation like a good conversation, a productive conversation without addressing those issues. Um, because it really goes hand in hand. And one of, I, I, one of the biggest threats to Central America um, are, the, you know, are these multinational corporations that are coming from outside, taking what they want, destroying the environment that, you know, has been preserved by these communities for centuries. Um, again, and during those centuries, they've been doing it, in, you know, in danger, fighting against the state, fighting against other corporations that try to come in earlier. Um, 
and also talking about how a lot of this is state sponsored. Um, so I think really you do need to consider these factors when talking about environmentalism in Central America. Um, in general, for the global South, I think these things also apply, probably against some regions more than others. Um, but also, you know, a lot of Central America and much of the global South, they're not the main causers of climate change, but they're the ones who are suffering the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as, as you brought up earlier, climate refugee, you know, at the UN, they're like trying to make it into a thing now and like recognize that. Um, but, you know, even when we look at the most recent ca- migrant caravan from Honduras, a lot of them came from places where the hurricanes destroyed their pla- their where they live because the state hasn't been able hasn't been able to or also there's just not enough political will to help them because as i said a lot of these communities are low income low income and they tend to be black and or indigenous um but also just generally in terms of climate change like no matter where you are if you really want to solve this issue you need to put the indigenous voices at the front um, and that also, in addition to that, you also want to put, you know, black communities and communities of color, because when we talk about in the United States, you know, environmental racism is very much a thing. Um, so, again, just putting knowing that um, race, class, disabilities, et cetera, all of this plays a factor into who um, suffers the most from the, this issue. Um, but going back to the original point I was doing, like supporting movements that put indigenous people um, and of course, this also includes Afro-Indigenous people, which people like like to discredit for the indig- their indigeneity. Um, they need to be at the forefront of these movements. So if we're talking about in the U.S., how are we going to protect the environment? There's Indigenous people there. Like, again, as we, you know, something that is people are starting to do more, you know, that we did now is a nat- land acknowledgement um, of where we are. Because a lot of the times these places, a lot their Indigenous communities still exist. Sometimes they don't live in that city because they were unfortunately displaced because of the gross policies of the U.S. or Canada or whatnot. But they very much exist and know how to protect it. They've been doing it for centuries before, you know, the whoever it was came, like Europeans came and colonized it and destroyed the environment. Um, and this also includes supporting movements like Land Back, which I know makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um <laughs> But it's something that's so necessary. I think something also something that people always like talk about is that if we do land back, then indigenous people are going to come and kill the people like the non-indigenous <laughs> people, which is like and it's it, it just shows how little people interact with indigenous people <laughs> because it's like they have repeatedly said like it's like we're not you like we don't. Yeah. You know, it's just more about like giving them control of the land, giving them control of the policies because they know how to protect it. And then you just have to comply with those policies. Like, okay, you can't frack here. You can't build right. a pipeline here. You can't um, build X here. Be- right. And so um, supporting these movements, although they may be uncomfortable to non-Indigenous people, like we need to do it. Um, even again, as people of color, non-Black, non-Indigenous people of color, um, like who are listening, like we need to support them. I know it may be uncomfortable, but like that's our role. Um, if we really want, you know, climate justice and climate change to really occur. And I think that's pretty much it. Oh, I mean, just final note, if all of these things make you uncomfortable, like you just need to find, like follow more indigenous accounts as well. Like there's so many indigenous activists. I mean, again, they don't even brand themselves as activists because it's a matter of survival. It's not like, it's not like a fun thing to do. It's a thing that you have to do out of love. 
um, you know, and, and I think a lot of the activism, you know, that, for example, that you may address with your podcast and in your own life, Samara, and that I do in my life, it's just about, it's out of love. It's not something that you do for like a resume or to look impressive. It's just something that you need to do because you want to see your community live and thrive. You don't, you don't want them to suffer more than they have, or you don't want them to disappear. Yes. Thank you for all of that. And I mean, 100% this podcast, this platform myself is all about land back and reparations for people. That is at the end of the day, bottom line, what we need for climate action. Oh, like have been calling that since day one, since pre-colonialism. Right. And um, yeah, thank you again, just for taking the time to, you know, really dive into some of these things, like provide so much knowledge, so much resources, and um, also explained um, the sort of campaign that is been happening and continue happening with Chiquita. I'm really excited, like I said, to just share all of that. And we'll definitely be sharing the um, community resources that you'll have in the collective, because I think that's so important. At the end of the day, we should be informing ourselves before putting out opinions and pieces, right? And like really diving into the work Mm -hmm. that's already available. Um, So again, thank you for listening to Raices Verdes. This is a podcast for healing our relationship to the earth as Black and Indigenous people of color. Um, to stay updated on the future episodes and hear more, you can follow us on Instagram at Nuestras Raices Verdes, on the website NuestrasRaicesVerdes.com, and of course, listen to this episode and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn. Thank you. Bye.